What is at the cross that Jesus defeated all of the principalities and powers and evil. And so today we're going to talk about Jesus' spiritual warfare guide in a very interesting passage in Luke. We're going to talk about Beelzebub. Beelzebub, otherwise known as Satan. But here in Beelzebub, it's a very interesting phrase in the middle of our passage. Jesus says, hey, if Satan is divided against himself, how is his kingdom going to stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Like, where did that term come from? I mean, seemingly it comes out of nowhere. Where did we get the term Beelzebub? Well, it's actually a play on words that goes back to an old Canaanite god named Baal. They actually called him Beelzebul. Sounds a little French, Beelzebul. Because Baal was a bull god, a fertility god. Beelzebul meant Baal the prince. He's the prince. He's the lord of princes. He's the god we worship. And he was an idol. Well, almost like you're in junior high and something sounds a little goofy, you make fun of somebody's name. The Hebrews made fun of it by not calling him Beelzebul, but changing it to, sounds like Beelzebub, which meant Lord of the Flies. And what was a Lord of the Flies is where are flies attracted but to a big, heaping stack of dog poopay. And so they referred to the Baal god, knowing that demons were behind idols, as Beelzebub, the big pile of dung, the pile of filth. Because wherever filth was, it attracted other demonic forces, it attracted uh, idols. And so behind every idol in your life, there was an evil force trying to destroy you. And that's where we get Beelzebub. So there's two principles here that are related to that I think are helpful in understanding before we dive into the passage. The first one is this. Satan uses a pile of lies to attract the flies in our life. A big pile of lies which attract these idols. And they attract these demons that use these idols to destroy us, to capture us, to to draw us in, to destroy us. So what is an idol? So don't think, well, thank goodness I'm not living back then with those people bowing down to statues. Sure. But we have idols every day. I probably have ten idols a day I'm combating. It's when you take a good thing and make it your ultimate source. The fly of an idol can be used by the evil one to entrap you and destroy you. It might be something like your appearance. I know God says I'm beautiful. I know he died for me. I know he says I'm valuable. But how I feel, I look, how young I am, how pretty I am, whether somebody says something nice to me, that's how I find my real value. There's nothing wrong wanting to be liked and wanting to be beautiful. But when it becomes your ultimate value, it becomes an idol. And that will be used to destroy you. Because one day you're looking good and the next day you're not so much. Religion becomes an idol. Because one day I prayed really well. Oh my goodness, I feel good with God because I did it. Next day, oh, it was a bad day. I fell into temptation. I didn't do what I should. Your performance can be an idol. Your status can be an idol. You can make a number into an idol. The number on your savings account, the number on your paycheck, the number you're giving away could be an idol. Your independence. You so need to be independent that that becomes the idol. And you're chasing it around. And you can chase idols and those flies all over the place. 
And as you're chasing them, you're saying, peace comes from this, not from God. I know God's important. I'm going to heaven. But here's what I'm really living for. And a pile of lies attracts these flies. And underneath that is the father of lies himself. Remember, Jesus tells us in John 8, when Satan speaks, he, he only knows one language. He speaks as a liar out of his own resources, for lying is his native tongue. And that big pile of dog poopay that is Beelzebub is a pile of lies, and he's the father of lies. And so behind every idol is actually a demonic influence that is being driven by the lies of their father. This is mentioned both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's what it says. They, in Deuteronomy, provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. So when you serve foreign gods or idols, notice what it goes on to say. With um, abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed what they're sacrificing to foreign gods. When you sacrifice to foreign gods, you're actually also sacrificing to demons, not God. Huh. Who would think that when you put something in the place of God that demons could use that to latch on and hook you. Now notice, idols always require sacrifice, right? They're sacrificing. You always sacrifice. If career becomes your idol, you'll sacrifice your health, you'll sacrifice your marriage, you'll sacrifice everything. You always sacrifice to your God. Always, always, always. But if you sacrifice to something that's not the one true God, it will be used to destroy you by spiritual forces. Now, lest you think this is an Old Testament concept, it gets picked up again in Corinthians where he says, Rather, the things which the Gentiles, and they were sacrificing the statues of Zeus and Demeter and Apollo and the like, when they sacrifice, and you always sacrifice to your idols, they're actually sacrificing not just to that big stone statue of Zeus, but to demonic forces and not to God. So the question is, as you look at your life, what are the flies, good things, that you are making an allegiance to, that evil forces can use to destroy you, that are not God? I'm not talking about the prayer you prayed 20 years ago. I'm glad you prayed that prayer. I'm talking about what are you currently living for? We need to find the flies in our lives. Because Satan's primary strategy for infiltrating our lives, even as Christians, is through the lies of idolatry. So find the flies of your life. And your, your flies are different from my flies. In fact, if you found out about my flies, Chad, one of your flies is wanting people to like you. That's a good thing. Until it becomes a source of my identity. Is it a good sermon? Oh, Chad's valuable! It was a bad sermon. Ooh, man, you're up and down. You might say, I'd never struggle with that. And yet... Your fly is your appearance. It's your independence. What is the unique fly and strategy? Because remember, Jesus says, your father is a liar and there is no truth in him. So Jesus wants to help us break free from this. That brings us to our passage today in Luke chapter 11. He's going to show four stages to deal with the flies in your life, the idle aspects that evil forces can use. Let me give you an example of one of mine. So for the last 18 months, I've had a lot of inner turmoil. And I've been trying to figure out why. And I've been reading a book uh, that we have a speaker coming in about six weeks called Boundaries for Our Soul. It's about the Hebrew concept of learning how to speak to your soul. 
Why so downcast, O my soul? Soul, trust in the Lord. One of the things that helped me identify was that there's an inner project manager in me who is very, very helpful. It's a great part of my personality. It's a great part of God's giftedness to me who can plan things and schedule things. And I operate best when I have lead time. And that part of my soul is a gift from God. But it's also a fly. It's a good fly until it gets tied up to a lie. I realized my fly of being an inner project manager got tied up to a lie that said shalom and peace comes when you've solved this. About 18 months ago, I made the shift from putting all my mental energy into helping my older two get through college to shifting all that mental energy over to helping my younger son, Quinn, deal with autism and what the future holds and what the next 10 years, 20 years, even 80 years are going to hold financially and and relationally and vocationally. And and it has been overwhelming. And in my heart, I really believe I can fix just about anything. And that's slightly exaggerated, but I've got a lot of skills in this area. That's my strength. But as it turned into a fly, I felt it. Couldn't really identify it, but I felt my soul telling me, when you've solved this, you can have peace. Sure, when I've solved autism, I can have peace. Yeah, Yeah, I'll be the first. But I'm enough of a realist that I twisted it just enough to make it attainable so I would chase it. Well, maybe not when I solve it, But when I have a plan that could eventually solve it, oh, now that's realistic. What I realized, I was chasing this fly around. And there's so many variables. My son just had seizures for the third third time this week. So we're bringing him in for testing. And what I realized is God doesn't say peace comes when something happens. He says peace can be now. And when I tied that fly, solve this, to the lie of accomplishment, planning, shalom comes from your efforts, I create what the Bible calls a snare or a foothold or an agreement with the evil one. So how do we break those flies? Jesus gives us four steps in this passage. And the first one is you need to draw near to Jesus. Simple as that is. The best way to resist evil is to get near good. (laughs) Draw near to Jesus in Luke chapter 11. He was casting out a demon. And notice how this demon affected him physically. And it was mute. The demon was mute and therefore he was mute. Whatever aspect you allow evil forces into your life, they affect you. Your ability to speak to God in this case or your ability to hear from God. Because you're listening to lies. And though you're a Christian going to heaven and though you're sealed and you can't be demon-possessed, You can be demonized and he can speak into your feelings and speak into your mind and speak into your will and he can influence you with lies. And this demon was mute and so Jesus cast him out. And when the demon was gone, the mute spoke. He could talk to God again. He could hear from God again. He broke through the cloud of lies. And there were three reactions from the audience that day. I mean, imagine you're there. You've known this guy your whole life. and Whoa, I have never heard him talk. That's what his voice sounds like. Wow, he can sing. I never knew. And the evil force has been cast out, and there's three reactions. The first group is like, whoa. Whoa, they marveled, it says. They marveled. This is God. They said, I want to draw near a God who does something like this. 
God, I don't know what the future is going to hold. I don't know if I can solve anything or can't solve anything. But here's what I know. The safest place to be is marveling with you're with me. You are with me. You are with me. Then there's another group that reacts to the exact same circumstance, not with marvel, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, the dung heap. When God does what you want him to do, it's easy to go, well, good to be on your side, God. What about when God doesn't do what you want him to do? This is how we always react, one of the choices. You accuse God of not being good. From the garden, the main strategy Satan has for using idols in your life is thinking you know better than God. This circumstance shouldn't happen. If God was really good, it wouldn't happen. God's not trustworthy. I can't trust his character. Are you going to marvel that God knows more than you do and his, his ways are mysterious but he's trustworthy? Or are you going to accuse him of not being trustworthy? Because the minute you accuse him of not being trustworthy, the minute you decide that, well, if he's not going to do what I know he should do and I know what good looks like and this isn't clearly good, you create a foot and a snare hole and you're going to start chasing the I know better than God fly because it's tied into a lie, I know better than God. Or there's a third way you can respond. Instead of drawing near to Jesus, there's a third group that began to test him. And they sought another sign from him. Hey, that was pretty good. The old demon out of the guy trick. That's a good one. You know what? I'm thinking about believing in you. And I know I'm such a hot commodity, God, that, that if you will do a few more things, a couple more tricks, a couple more miracles, I might even consider, yes, I might, giving you my faith and allegiance. And what you're really saying is, God, you need to come to me, God, on, your, on my terms. And that is such a fly that we think that God comes to us on our terms. It's not drawing near to Jesus. It's actually saying, Jesus, you need to draw near to me. And here's the line. Here's the rule. Here's what you, God, can do. Here's what you, God, can't do. But we're not really drawing near to Jesus. Now, exorcism was something, casting of evil spirits, that traced back even to the time of Solomon. If you've ever read uh, Josephus, the historian, Josephus actually has, you can look this up later, Type in Josephus, Solomon, and exorcism. Going back to the wisest man in history, Solomon used to teach the scribes and Pharisees how to actually take out evil forces. It was recorded by Josephus. So this was a common practice, and Jesus will reference it here when we get to the next point. But number one, if you want to deal with the flies in your life, you need to draw near to Jesus first. Number two, you need to look for areas of a divided kingdom. Jesus answers this by saying, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Guys, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to destruction. This doesn't make any sense. He's going to ask three questions. They all begin with if. You think I'm Beelzebub casting out my own minions? That would be like a kingdom divided against itself, a divided kingdom. They always fall. That's common sense. He asks it three ways. Number one, okay, if Satan is divided against himself... How's that going to work out? How's that kingdom going to continue to stand? Because you say I cast them out by Beelzebub? Second question. And if I, okay, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, let me ask you this. Who do your sons cast them out by? Which again shows that there was exorcisms happening during that time. It's like, well, how do you know? If your sons do it and I do it, who judges exactly? How would you know if Satan's casting out Satan or God's casting out Satan? And they're like, oh, good point. They ask the third question. 
But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. But if, it's not really a question as much as another if statement. It's possible I brought the kingdom of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there was this idea that the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's uh, gods, which were behind all the plagues, gods, all the plagues were against the different gods of the Egyptians. And the Pharaoh went out with a mighty right hand. And often, coming up against the mighty right hand, the right hand of authority of the foreign gods of the Egyptians and other gods, God could have said, and I came up against the right hand of the evil ones with my right hand. I crushed them. But he doesn't. Sometimes Google the phrase, finger of God. When the evil forces come up with their right hand of authority, Jesus brings out just a finger. Oh, there's an evil spirit that's guarded this guy for 15 years. The mighty right hand of the evil one. And God's like, There he goes. The mute force. God's little finger is more powerful than the right hand of evil. And so we don't need to be scared of this subject. We have the victory, but we do need to incorporate that by being near Jesus. And two, the metaphor here Jesus uses is a divided house, a divided kingdom. But this is the exact same way that idols get into your life and evil begins to have influence in your life. A divided house. The Bible calls this double-mindedness, double-heartedness. The idea that you have two allegiances. I'm aligned to God and to people's approval. I'm aligned to God and to defining myself by my money. I'm aligned to God and my status and reputation. And I will, I will align with God most of the time, well, unless it's related to my status, then I can make an exception here. I'll give you some examples of that. So again, this term Beelzebub also comes from the Bible. Not just from the anti-Canaanites, but it comes from a passage in 2 Kings. So our king here, Ahaziah, is hanging out one day in the kingdom. In general, he would say, yes, we, we love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We go to temple, we do sacrifices, good stuff from the God. He's the one we love. He's the one that's going to get us into eternity one day. But one day, he's sort of leaning up against the lattice. Don't lean up against the lattice, by the way. It's not real structural. So he's leaning up against the lattice and, oh, he falls down and he, oh, And he's laying there, damaged from falling through the lattice. And in general, he believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when you're in this kind of situation, he looks up and he's like, I've fallen and I can't get up. And he hits his little beeper and he says, call on Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. In general, I pursue God. But when you're in dire circumstances like lattice work, you call upon the real God. And that's how you're going to find your divided heart. In general, you say you believe in God, but when you're in difficulty, what do you go to for comfort? Food? Media? Pornography? Somebody tell me I'm okay? You've got a divided heart. You've made a secondary allegiance. And God tells Elijah, could you go talk to Isaiah? And Elijah shows up. He's like, hey, God's got a message for you. Hey, is it that there's no God in Israel? That you've got to call upon Beelzebub to inquire as to whether or not you're going to live? 
two gods. Divided heart, foothold, snare, allegiance. Now, Baal worship continues to spread, even up to Jesus' day, or right before Jesus' day, even in the area of the Sea of Galilee. So much so that archaeologists actually found, here on the right is a Baal statue, and a tell is an archaeological find that has layers. If you dig down a certain layer, you find one piece. You dig down further, it's you know, the years before that, etc. Well, they dug way down in this particular site, and they found a statue of Baal. This area was covered with Baal worship around the Sea of Galilee. But there's a community that came after that and said, we're no longer going to have a divided heart. We want to teach ourselves and our children and grandchildren to have a heart that loves God with all of our heart, not half of it, all of our mind, not a quarter of it, all of our spirit, all of our strength. And they begin to train themselves. What does it look like to love God, to serve God, to not have a divided heart toward God? And above Baal worship, they actually create a community, a real small fishing village. Here in this fishing village, of all the other towns in the world, Jesus will walk into this town. This fishing village is known as Bethsaida. He walks into Bethsaida, a group that is taught, big synagogue there for a little fishing village. And he comes across a man named Peter, the apostle, and says, Wow, you've got a heart for me. Follow me. Same little town. What's your name? Andrew? Andrew, I can see you want to seek after God. Come, follow me. Philip, come and follow me. One of the reasons as a church we're so committed not just to babysitting and children's ministry, but to anchoring in them a love for God. The reason we go verse by verse through the Bible, we spent six months in Leviticus for crying out loud, we spent 18 months in Luke. We want to know how to have an undivided heart because there's bales all underneath us that are vying for our attention. Tony Dungy tells a story that again shows another way that divided hearts look. During my first season with the Bucks, things started to turn around for us. We entered the 1997 season with high hopes. In the opening game, a critical moment when we were trying to protect a very slim lead. Hardy Nickerson, our defensive captain and a team uh, leader, received an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty for getting into an altercation with a 49ers player after the play had ended. I was livid, Tony Dungy said. We spent a lot of time trying to help our young players understand, and they couldn't get foolish penalties. They shouldn't get foolish penalties and expect to win big games. I brought Hardy to the sidelines, and I asked him what happened. He disrespected me, Hardy said. I was dumbfounded. I asked him if he knew that we were in the process of building a team based on poise and character and accountability to each other. As a team captain with a winning organization, Hardy more than anyone knew what I meant as I reminded him of that. I asked him, are you willing to, here's the word, sacrifice the team, the goal of winning, simply because your individual honor had been challenged by some unwritten code that had been broken. I loaded the question to make sure he realized how important this was. I gave him a chance to come back on board quickly so he'd get back out there and play. And instead, his answer shocked me. That's all fine until someone disrespects me. That was a defining moment for both of us, I believe. Hardy and I met later that week, and he came to appreciate where I was coming from when I explained this attitude wouldn't work as a member of our team. And I realized if someone like Hardy Nickerson 
One of our most experienced and veteran players, a bright, thoughtful graduate of UC Berkeley, thought this way. It was probably far more entrenched than the rest of our young men. Do you see what happened? In general, I'm aligned to win, win, win. I'm aligned. That's the main goal. That's what we're trying to do. And I will follow that unless I'm disrespected. And you may laugh at that because you're like, that's not one of your flies. Some of you are like, not laughing at that because you're like, that's exactly how I feel. I'll treat my wife kindly unless she disrespects me. Then, (laughs) exception to the kindness verse. And that's called dual-mindedness. And that is how the evil one gets access to us, is that he finds areas of dual-mindedness, a divided house. Third, you've got to use the armor of one kingdom to defeat the other. This is the Ephesians 6 of Jesus. But he's talking about the armor of the enemy. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace, they're protected. And the evil one is the strong man, Beelzebub. He's protecting his spoils. He's got guards. He's got armor. And all those spoils are protected until one stronger than he comes in. And when the one stronger than he comes in overcomes the strong man, he takes from him all of his armor. Can't protect that anymore. Disarms him. Puts on public spectacle to him on the cross, Colossians tells us. And it was the armor he trusted in. And then the stronger man, who now has broken through, tied him down, taken away his armor, collects the spoils. Who are the spoils? You and me. We were the one captured by evil because we gave ourselves over to thinking we know better than God. Jesus came to earth to defeat the strong man, to put he and all of his powers on display at the cross, to take away his armor and take away his power, So that in Christ, you are the spoils of the evil one that have been taken back by war and the war won by Jesus that you can be fully restored, fully forgiven, fully victorious in Jesus. He goes on, he says, he who is not against me, so he who is not with me is against me. There's no neutral ground. You're either with the armor of the evil one and his kingdom or you're with me and my kingdom. And he who does not gather with me scatters. So real quick, what is some of the armor of the evil one? Well, let's take a walk around his house. One of the greatest pieces of armor that Satan uses is lying. He lies to you about God. He lies to you about the world. The world's supposed to be a comfortable place. And you go out there, oh, oh. Well, if the world's supposed to be comfortable, what would happen to me? He lies to you about God, yourself, and others. You're not lovable. If you really were a Christian, you never would have thought that, never would have felt that. Another one of his tools is accusation. Did you know that Satan all day long in heaven, like what does he do? He's he's mostly hanging around earth, by the way. He's the prince of the power of the air. But it says he's the accuser of the brethren. All day long, this is what he does. How dare you? How could you? You thought that? You believed that? You struggle with that? How dare you? God, have you seen this? You... This person says they're on your side. How embarrassing. How embarrassing for you. How embarrassing for your family. What have you done to your reputation? You're not lovable. You're not redeemable. Accusation. Confusion. Corinthians tells us God has not given us a spirit of confusion. When you see confusion between you and your spouse, between you and your kids, you and your brother, you and your sister, you and your boss... The spirit of confusion is always of the evil one. It's a fly. And then you're like, well, this confusion, I've got to control it. 
And then you think you can be in control, and that confusion leads to destruction. That's why Jesus says, whenever you see confusion, you've got to draw near to that confusion. Go to the person one-on-one. Don't gossip or triangulate. Get rid of that tool. And every day, we need to put on the armor of another kingdom to defeat this kingdom. I've had a lot of spiritual attacks in the last two years. And here's one of the lies I believed. The evil one will eventually be worn out. If I could just outlast him. He's not worn out. He never wears out. You can't through stoicism outlast evil. You can't through fortitude and perseverance outlast him. I promise you, I promise you, they will outlast you. They are relentless to kill and to destroy and destroy the glory of God they see in you. They're after you because you represent the very image of God and they want to destroy that. The only way to defeat it is every day. Let your feet be shod with the gospel of peace. God, I'm walking in the gospel. God, help me put on the truth to come against whatever lie has tied itself to this fly in my life. I've got to put on the breastplate of righteousness because my identity, though I want to be liked, my true value doesn't come to whether or not I'm liked. It comes from your righteousness. I've got to remind myself again today the truth, God, that whether I have a good quarter or a bad quarter, and I want to have good quarters, but that doesn't define me. It's not a fly that I chase. My right, your righteousness defines me. Religion, how well I pray or don't pray, how much I do or don't do, that's not what defines me. It's what you've done, the righteousness of God. I put on the helmet of salvation. God, salvation, deliver me from the lies of the evil one. Make me take thoughts captive. Renew my mind. Let me put up the shield of faith, God. Extinguish the fiery darts from the evil one. His armor's been destroyed and dismantled, but I've got to put up the shield because he's still got a beer, 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 little fiery darts. And Father, I pull out the sword of the Spirit. May you carve up my heart and soul and let me see what's motivating me. Let me see the allegiances in my heart that I'm given over to and I don't realize. Every day we've got to put on the armor from our Father. And when you have deliverance and God begins to grow you in those, some of those areas, be careful. Because Jesus goes on and tells the most bizarre story in our fourth point. If you don't feel the emptiness... If you don't address the original snare, the original foothold, the original area that you allowed that lie to connect to an idol, evil's going to come back. It's going to return. So you've got to plug the hole, fill the emptiness so evil is not welcome. It doesn't return. Here's what Jesus says. When that unclean spirit I just kicked out of here, when he goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. Man, I enjoyed the allegiance I had killing this guy, destroying this person's life. And now he's wandering around in the dry places. Oh, jeez. So I can't find a good place to rest. Kind of liked hanging out there. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to return to the house I came from. See, so it goes back to you. Just when you have deliverance that grow, suddenly who's back? Someone trying to whisper a lie. And when they come back, look what it says. When he comes, he finds it, your heart, swept and put in order. This is not like a good order, like order to God. This is put in order so the evil can use it again. Oh, good! You still find your identity from other people's approval. 
Oh, good. You still think that a number is going to bring you meaning and purpose. Oh, this is so great. It's so great. I don't ever want to leave this time. What am I going to do before I enter? The door's still open. I know. I got seven of my wicked friends that are even worse than I am. Oh, well, let me go find them. And so, and so the, the evil spirit wanders over into some dark corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, the door's open. Yeah, this time they're not kicking us out. And he and seven of his buddies return. And they come and they enter into the same unlocked door that wasn't broken. The allegiance wasn't snapped. You didn't realign your heart back to an undivided heart. And Jesus says, When the seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, enter back and dwell there, reside there, the last state of the man is worse than the first. Better to have just had one than seven. If you don't plug the hole. So how do we plug the hole? Two areas. Envy and unforgiveness. You say, I know Jesus died for me. I know he forgives me. But you've got a story of someone who did something to you. I tell you what's even harder. Forgiving when somebody did something to someone you love. And you'll forgive everybody, but not what that girl that you don't even know her name said about your daughter and gossiped about her and destroyed her freshman year. And you've made an allegiance that God is the judge for everybody except that person. I'm going to be the judge. And that foothold, that snare, will be the doorway that evil will continue to plague you and destroy you and come after you because of that area of unforgiveness. I know people who are Christians are going to heaven. They say they love Jesus. They go to church every week, but they will not let go of unforgiveness. Everybody around them can see it. Second category is envy. You want somebody else's marriage. Because it looks like they get along better than you do. Oh man, his, his, her husband must really be great. Probably more sensitive than mine. Fill in the blank. You envy somebody else's kids. They're probably more obedient. They, they speak differently. And that envy becomes a snare and foothold. And if you don't plug that hole, if you don't confess and repent or turn from that and say, God, I have made something else higher than you, you've created a doorway for the flies to be attracted to the lies. So how do we get free? Because victory is provided. The strong man has been defeated. The armor is available to defeat it, but you've got to use it. You've got to utilize it. You've got to incorporate it. How do we find the flies of our lives? How do we come against this primary strategy? And I want to propose to you that it is by tying and seeing how your individual fly and idol, there's a very thin, hard-to-see line that ties to the head of the evil one and his lies. My dad told me a story. We grew up in a real small church, and the preaching wasn't great. In fact, it was so boring that most of us were sitting in church like... And one day, while we're all listening to... The pastor's son, sitting in the second row, did something amazing. He's watching everything but his dad preaching. And while sitting in that pew... He captured a fly with his own hand. My dad watched it. And he grabbed it. 
And now everyone around him who isn't paying attention to the sermon anyway is like, ooh, something interesting going on in church. A fly. Ooh. And then he came up with an idea. An idea that was so profound, let alone he thought he could accomplish it. It was amazing. People talked about it for years. There was a woman sitting in front of him. This was the 80s when women used an entire uh, can of hairspray every morning for their hair. But there was one hair that was loose from the otherwise concrete blob that was her hair. And he reached up and grabbed that one hair. She didn't notice. He then took that hair. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I don't know if he tied it around his butt or his leg. I'm not sure. I've never done it. And all of a sudden, he... Oh! Now everybody in that whole section is watching. What's going on there? Oh, and then, he, if you love it, you let it go. It's like a dog on a chain. It was stuck with his one hair coming off her. And then, knowing that it couldn't go any farther that way, it began to circle her head. Now, no one is listening to the sermon. Everyone is watching the incredible fly that is tied to one hair on a woman who is actually listening and taking notes during the sermon. <coughs> you couldn't see the one hair. But you could see that fly circling around her. <clears throat> and I'm telling you, that you and I have these flies. And they're usually good things. But if you look at it carefully, if you search your soul and ask the Holy Spirit to search it, you'll find a little line that goes back to the head of the evil one. And there is some lie about shalom, some lie about comfort, some lie about yourself, the world, or God that's got to be dealt with. Which is why this... <laughs> Passage ends in the most bizarre way. Jesus just preached this incredible sermon about coming against the devil, and all of a sudden somebody pops up in the back row. And it happened that as he spoke these things, wow, Chad just gave a great sermon. Jesus just gave a great sermon. What's the response? Somebody stands up and says, wow, your mom must be proud. Blessed is the womb that bore you and her breast that nursed you. Thanks. Chad, great sermon on, on, the, on, the, on the devil and Jesus. Somebody stands up. Your mom must be proud. I'm thinking about her breast. She must be so glad she breastfed you. Uh, thanks. And now back to what I was really talking about. And look what he says. Thanks for honoring my mom. But blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and keep it. You've got to apply this. Keep it. To keep something is to treasure it. To realize God treasures you and you now can be treasured by the very thing that treasures you. And the more you treasure it, the more you get treasured by it. Because you understand how valuable it is that treasures you. And you say, I want to keep it, not because I have to, not because I, uh, I must or uh, it's going to make me closer to God or it's going to make me more uh, acceptable to God. No, I am fully accepted in the gospel. And I am kept by my treasure. And I now trust him I trust him. If he says i got to put on armor, I'm putting on armor. If he tells me that that's a lie, it doesn't feel like a lie, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to treasure it. I'm going to incorporate it. And that's how we come against the flies of our lives. We hear the truth, but it's not going to help until we keep the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful uh, training manual on how to deal with brokenness in our own heart. God, help us live in the victory of being in Christ and the victory of knowing that you've already disarmed our ultimate enemy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before you go, one quick announcement. If you are uh, wondering as a family how you can help your kids 
With all the temptations in the world today and all the idols in the world, there's a family night brochure in your program. There's three opportunities there related to social media. Dan Martin next week speaking here. We have um, uh, Dean um, of UC is going to come and speak to our kids about social media and the impact that makes later in life of not getting jobs because of something you posted. Lots of really practical things in the unique world we live in today. So check that out. We'd love to have you there. We'll see you all next week. Thanks.